0: Are you looking for your next adventure or for your next place to call home? Come explore British Columbia with the help of HealthMatch BC. We're a free health professional recruitment service funded by the government of British Columbia. We're currently recruiting for physicians of all specialties on behalf of BC's publicly funded health employers. If you're a physician or other health professional looking to make a change, we can help. Visit us at www.healthmatchbc.org for more information and to speak with one of our recruitment consultants.
1: To shingles, age isn't just a number. Do you have patients 50 or older? They're at higher risk of getting shingles. Don't wait. Talk about Shingrix with your patients over 50 today. Shingrix is indicated for the prevention of herpes zoster, HZ, or shingles in adults 50 years of age or older. Consult a product monograph at gsk.ca slash Shingrix slash PM for contraindications, warnings, and precautions, adverse reactions, interactions, dosing, and administration information. To request a product monograph or to report an adverse event, please call 1-800-387-7374. Learn more at
2: thinkshingrix.ca. For the past few months, COVID 19 has been dominating the news cycle and our social media feeds. It's also been front of mind for physicians, especially those responsible for diagnosing it while also trying to keep up with protocols and guidelines. With so much talk about the disease, is COVID 19 distracting? Is it affecting the way physicians diagnose? Is it leading to diagnostic error? I'm Dr. Dorian Deschauer, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. In today's episode, we'll try to answer those questions. You'll hear from Dr. Justin Morgenstern, an emergency doctor who has spent a lot of time analyzing physician decision-making. He digs into the many factors that influence the way doctors diagnose, including cognitive bias. But first up, you'll hear my conversation with two physicians, Dr. Alex Cobsa and Dr. Brandon Budrum, who describe how they misdiagnosed a patient back in April of this year. She presented with classic COVID-19 symptoms, but her diagnosis turned out to be something else entirely, and it took the physicians quite a lot of time to get to the correct diagnosis. Welcome to CMAJ Podcast.
3: Thanks for having us, Dorian.
0: Thanks so much. We're excited to be here.
2: So can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and where you work, starting with Alex?
0: My name is Alexandra Kopsa, and both Brandon and I are second year internal medicine residents at McMaster University. We're really thrilled to be here today.
3: My name is Brandon Budram, and not only are we co-residents in the internal medicine program, uh, we're also the co-leaders of the patient safety committee here at McMaster University, and it was really in that capacity that we became interested in this case.
2: Well, let's get right into it. You've written up the details of a case that's really timely in this COVID pandemic, So could we start off by telling our listeners about the patient who was admitted and what information you had about her?
3: Yeah, so our patient was a 40-year-old female who was otherwise quite healthy. She presented to the hospital in April of 2020 uh, with a 10-day constellation of symptoms that included mildly productive cough, low-grade fevers, fatigue, and shortness of breath on exertion with oxygen desaturations that were going to the high 80s. Now, notably, she didn't have any COVID contacts or recent travel that we elicited. She was, however, a personal support worker with exposures to long-term care facilities. Now, as we know, many of these facilities were hit quite hard during the pandemic, but fortunately, her workplace did not have any outbreaks at that time. And that's all the, you know, the relevant information we acquired on the first pass.
2: And just with that basic information, uh, were you suspecting COVID?
0: Absolutely. So at this point, COVID-19 was certainly the leading diagnosis Now, I do wanna bring your attention to Brendan's earlier point that the patient presented in April of 2020, which many of us will remember was really the peak of COVID-19 cases so far in Canada. And if you recall, during this time, the sheer quantity of COVID-19 related information, both with respect to policies and medical literature, was just really overwhelming. I think that the pandemic inspired a significant amount of fear related to the diagnosis of COVID-19. And it's probably safe to say for both ourselves and many of our colleagues that we had some degree of tunnel vision.
2: So here you have this this person, you're suspecting COVID, you're putting on your personal protective equipment, and you decide to order some tests. So what what did you do next?
3: We did what you would expect in terms of the standard battery of tests when she was admitted. So that included blood work, chest x-ray, and a nasopharyngeal swab looking for multiple respiratory pathogens, uh, obviously including SARS-CoV-2. The blood work had multiple findings that were compatible with the diagnosis of COVID-19, including you know, the significant leukopenia, uh, low albumin, and elevated inflammatory markers, including the CRP and the LDH, you know, these markers that we commonly associated with COVID-19. The chest x-ray further pushed us in that direction, showing bilateral interstitial markings. Um, but it should be noted that while these investigations were compatible with the diagnosis of COVID-19, uh, and we put a lot of emphasis into them at the time, they're incredibly nonspecific tests. And then lo and behold, our first NPS was in fact negative.
0: Um, I can kind of tell you what, uh, what our next steps were. So as with many of these undifferentiated patients, she was initially treated empirically for a community-acquired pneumonia with levofloxacin. Uh, but COVID-19 was definitely still at the forefront of our minds. After a couple of days, she showed some minimal improvement. So she was no longer febrile, although she was receiving Tylenol. And her oxygen saturation had improved marginally, maybe from 89 to 92%. So at this point, we performed another NP swab, as well as the COVID-specific sputum PCR, both of which came back negative. So at this point, we had three negative confirmatory tests, uh, yet COVID-19 still led our differential diagnosis.
3: Yeah, and you know, we didn't really appreciate it at the time, but it's important to note that at our institute at McMaster, the, the PCR assay demonstrates pretty phenomenal sensitivity and specificity, both on the order of over 95% when there's adequate technique. So to your point, you know, we had three negative PCRs, but we still suspected COVID-19 and we still had to explain her symptoms, her blood work, her chest x-ray. So we, we ordered a CT scan of her chest. That CT scan showed extensive bilateral ground glass capacities which again, to us, was compatible with COVID-19.
2: So I was just wondering, at that point, were you starting to get reports about false negatives uh, in the nasopharyngeal swabs? I can't remember the timeline of all this unfolding and and the the flow of knowledge around testing.
3: Yeah, so the thought process, at least on our end at that time, was that you can either get a sample from the upper respiratory tract or the lower respiratory tract. Um, Obviously, the NP swabs are upper respiratory the sputum PCR that she produced was pretty good quality, and that would be a lower respiratory tract sample. But our thought was that, you know, if we really want a great sample, we need to get the bronchoscopy done. Like, she's otherwise healthy. She'll tolerate a bronch. And we asked her respiratory colleagues, and they kind of agreed. So that was our next step.
2: So it sounds to me like you really wanted to nail down the diagnosis. You weren't willing to just say probable COVID based on, on what you had. You really wanted that lab diagnosis.
0: Exactly. It was... It was pretty unsettling to have uh, this previously healthy woman coming in with quite severe symptoms and to not have an explanation for those symptoms before we sent her home.
3: Yeah, she had the bronchoscopy. She actually tolerated it very well. And then she requested to be discharged after the procedure. She wasn't 100% better by any means, but she was discharged in stable condition. And we did ask her to just self-isolate pending the results. We were really hoping to get kind of this clear-cut diagnosis of COVID-19 on bronchoscopy. That was the goal.
2: So basically, you sent her home thinking, yes, we're going to get the diagnosis. She'll stay home and and self-isolate, and hopefully this this will resolve. And suddenly, you you get this really unexpected result.
0: Exactly. So I wish we could say that we started suspecting an alternative diagnosis, maybe at the time of the third negative PCR, or or ideally even the second. But really, uh, we can't say that at all. So just like we were saying, in all honesty, um, COVID-19 led our differential diagnosis until that bronchoscopy came back, and it showed, uh, to our surprise, pneumocystis giravetsi. So at that time, the diagnosis of PJP completely was not expected, um, but once we had that confirmatory test, all the dominoes kind of fell into place, and the picture was really quite clear.
3: The next steps after that were obviously, we called the patient back to look for an underlying immunosuppressive condition, naturally thinking about HIV. Um, And then I was surprised to see what I found. I was actually on call that weekend uh, that she returned to the hospital. And at that time, not really thinking about COVID-19 anymore, we were able to do a much fuller and more comprehensive history and physical exam. That new exam and just overall assessment revealed this 50-pound weight loss over the previous year, intermittent night sweats, this kind of like purple painless lesion on her chest that looked like classic Kaposi sarcoma and an active uh, HSV-2 general herpes infection. She also disclosed these high risk sexual activities five to 10 years prior. Um, and unfortunately, like none of this information had been identified at the time of her initial admission when COVID-19 was the prime suspect, you know, of course, had it been identified, it would have drastically changed the trajectory of her state. Now, not surprisingly, her serology did come back confirming HIV. Her CD4 count was actually 10 with a viral load of just under 700,000.
2: So you had the, the, the diagnostic side of it, but what about the, like on a personal level? How, how did you feel when you got that
3: result? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a great feeling, Dorian. Uh, it was certainly a humbling experience. There were multiple cognitive errors at play during this case, but the most important one I want to emphasize uh, was premature diagnostic closure. This represents the failure to consider other diagnoses once an initial diagnosis is proposed, which in our case was obviously COVID-19. Now this has been well documented as one of the most common causes of diagnostic error in internal medicine. Uh, And then our premature diagnostic closure then opened the gates for other diagnostic errors, including the incomplete history and physical exam, the overestimation of the the non-specific laboratory and imaging findings um, as they related to COVID-19.
1: Now, the clinicians here had COVID as their number one diagnosis, and whether that's a great diagnosis depends a lot on the community prevalence at the time. And, you know, I don't know a lot about the specific neighborhood, but in general, in April 2020, a PSW with exposure to long-term care facilities, a fever, a cough, bilateral ground glass opacities on a CT, well, COVID had to be on the differential. And, you know, you might debate, but I think they were probably right to put it right at the top of the differential. So I'm Justin Morgenstern. I'm an emergency doctor from the Toronto area. Uh, Actually, I probably spend a lot more of my time outside of the hospital working on things like uh, medical education, podcasts, and blogs all centered around my website, As I watched through medical school and residency, I I sort of got the sense that what might differentiate an average doc from a great doc is sort of what they do with those mistakes. And I'll tell you, I started my career as distinctly average. And I realized if I didn't study my mistakes and, and maybe study the mistakes of the people around me, if I didn't try to learn from them, I was destined to be making the same mistakes over and over and over again. And when you think about it, that's pretty depressing. So it was that thought that really got me reading a lot about how our brains work, about the mistakes we make, and sort of hopefully how we can avoid some of those mistakes. Kudos to these authors for being willing to talk about their mistakes in public. That's an essential part if we're going to get better at this, if we're going to learn from each other. Uh, But what I think is a really interesting component of this case is even though the authors think that they may have made some, some mistakes and they really got focused in on COVID, and that might be a mistake they still weren't satisfied with that diagnosis. They still went ahead with bronchoscopy at a time when bronchoscopy is really difficult to do. It's an aerosol generating procedure and they did it in a patient who was actually well enough to go home and wait for the results. You know, if it was me, I could picture myself just waiting, right? Assuming this was COVID and assuming that there was nothing else that I can do. They didn't, they didn't close off their minds. They kept searching for a diagnosis. And to me, that's key. Even if cognitive errors are made, as long as you keep your mind open, You're always going to be able to recover from your errors. Early in COVID, these doctors had to deal with so much uncertainty. You know, we didn't know how accurate the nasal swabs were, we didn't know how accurate CT was, we didn't know all the symptoms that COVID might present with. We didn't know how many people in the community were actually sick. I, I mean, we still don't know a lot of those things, but how can we blame a clinician in April 2020 for misinterpreting the meaning of ground glass opacities on a CT in the context of all that uh, uncertainty. So th- I definitely think that there's some, some stuff that you might call a no fault error. And then you get into the, the system of, of medicine a little bit more. I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, but I've never spent a day at work where I didn't feel busy where I didn't feel, rushed uh and during covid you know we that that's our baseline is doctors but think about the you know you know, hundreds of extra hours of meetings and the hours of writing and learning these new protocols that came out. So I think we were all stretched pretty thin. Uh, and although it's really important to learn about COVID as it came out, I I think we underestimate the secondary effects of you releasing a new uh, protocol every three or four days uh, from you know distracting us a little bit from the from the patient in front of us potentially. I think there's a large number of, of ways we could uh, think about system errors. You, you know, we were all very, very worried about PPE. Uh, I, I don't know what was happening in their hospital at the time, but if they didn't have adequate PPE, well, then maybe that's a system error where you're not going to be able to do a full exam. I bet you a lot of us were actually in the opposite. Maybe we were actually safe. We just felt anxious or rushed um, in a way that people had not made us feel safe to see these uh, new, new patients. I think the important thing is so often when we see error, we point fingers and blame individual doctors. And yeah, all of us really, really need to try to learn and improve constantly, but that won't be good enough if we don't also at the same time try to improve the systems within which we work. And actually, honestly, for the most part, the human brain works great. Like think about how we work. We work in a chaotic world full of uncertainty with bizarre presentations and incomplete information. And physicians still make the right diagnosis the vast majority of the time, but these errors are out there. uh, And I think we do need to try to improve. So in my mind, there's sort of four key pillars that I try to do at least. So the first would be, you know, there's a very long list of known biases, known cognitive errors that have been come out of the psychology literature for decades. Um, And I think we should at least at bare minimum, learn what they are. You know, you're never going to be able to avoid confirmation bias if you don't at least know what it is. Um, second, I do, I do think it's important to spend a little bit of time thinking about our thinking, but there's a fancy term for that metacognition. But the basic idea is, you know, you have a patient with chest pain in front of you, you decide that the patient's having an MI. Now, you got to take a step back and ask yourself, you know, what about the case made you think it was an MI? Was your logic sound? Were there any parts of the case that don't really make sense? And that would lead me to my point number three, which is you always have to ask, what else could this be? And maybe more important than that question is ask yourself, what doesn't fit? Why am I wrong? Because once you decide on a diagnosis, it's way too easy to get locked in on that diagnosis and stop thinking. And a key component of scientific thinking is always looking for disconfirming evidence. Don't try to prove yourself right. Try to prove yourself wrong. And all of a sudden your, your logic, your thinking is going to be a lot stronger and then Finally, I think we need to make it very, very comfortable in medicine to talk about our mistakes. You know, doctors want to be perfect. Errors almost a taboo in medicine. But we can't learn from our mistakes. We can't improve unless we're willing to admit that we've actually made some mistakes. You know, it's always better to learn from somebody else's mistakes so you don't have to make it uh, yourself. Uh, so once again, I'd also say kudos to these authors for being brave enough to talk about their mistakes publicly in uh, CMAJ.
2: maybe a question for both of you. Um, How do you see authoritative medical information that you can trust, like getting into the medical practice, and how does that interact with other kind of rumors and um, less reliable information that might be flowing either on uh, social media or in the popular press?
0: You know, the information that's flowing from social media or the news is, it's much more easily accessible. And I find that Sometimes when I hear that, I wonder, is it because I've missed something in the literature or is, is that truth? And it's kind of hard to find, you know, a good balance of what the accurate information actually
3: is. Yeah, that, that's a, you know, that's a great question because I've even noticed in my personal life, you know, we have information that flows from multiple directions. Like you commented on, like we can get some in the workplace in the sense of like uh, from our staff physicians and from the hospital themselves. But then when you go home. Uh, depending on you know who you are and, and where you live, you get this kind of h- huge amount of information from social media, from your friends and, and your colleagues. It's extremely hard to streamline this information. I think in an ideal world, you would have one source of information that is reliable. And I think that should probably come from the hospital setting. Um, but it, it's really hard because it's convoluted with other information you're getting. I think at that time in April of 2020, information was coming kind of from all directions. And personally, I wasn't sure, uh, at least, I didn't feel sure about what the, what the guidelines are, what we were supposed to be doing for these query COVID-19 patients.
2: What do you think this is teaching you or what, what are you learning from this in terms of the role of experts in society? Um, and, And I mean, not just in medicine, but, but the role of, of the expert.
3: I mean, for me personally, it taught me that I need to just acquire one source where I can, or, you know, a few sources that I can streamline information. And then, you know, more importantly, it taught me that this, this kind of thing will happen. Like diagnostic errors do happen. And throughout our medical careers, both Alex and I appreciate that we're going to have to use this opportunity uh, to learn for the, for, you know, for the rest of our, our medical careers in the sense that you know, we won't make this mistake again, and we'll kind of be more aware uh, when future situations like this arise.
0: Um, I also think that when communicating with the public, I found that having uh fewer people commenting on the state of the pandemic and what people should be doing was helpful. And particularly having people in healthcare kind of make those recommendations, I think gained uh, buy-in from the public and people's trust. And having kind of one unifying message was, was the way to go.
3: And, and Dorian, I think we can all probably appreciate that say in April of 2020 compared to now, uh, the month being September now, like we feel much more comfortable with these patients that come into hospital when it's suspected COVID-19, just because we have more experience with it, we kind of know more about the literature and the policies, things are not as rapidly changing. So, you know, that improves our comfort level in the situation. It's not like in April of 2020, like I don't know that this same mistake may have happened again.
2: Thanks so much, Brandon and Alex, for taking the time to talk to me today and share this case with our our listeners and our readers.
0: Thanks so much. It was
3: great. Thanks for having us, Dorian. And uh, I just want to, you know, echo the sentiment that we're, we're, extremely thrilled to be part of this, and we want to thank you for having us.
2: Well, you're very welcome. I've been speaking with Dr. Alex Cobsa and Dr. Brandon Budram, second-year internal medicine residents at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. They wrote a practice article with Dr. Nauful Mohammed. The article is published in CMAJ, and you can read it on our website. You also heard from Dr. Justin Morgenstern, emergency physician in Toronto. And don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ podcasts on SoundCloud or podcast app. I'm Dr. Dorian Deschauer, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.